3 through kindergarten and the rest if you would turn in your bibles to the book of mark chapter 2 and we'll read uh, verse 14 so i told the 8:30 service i feel so much more comfortable with that size of a text for us to to look at this morning so Mark 2, verse 14. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. Let's pray. Father, what a moment that must have been for Levi to hear the voice of his Savior say, Follow me. We recognize, O God, that those words were spoken not just to him, but they're spoken as well to us through the inspiration of your Spirit. I pray that you'll help us to have a similar response, that we will rise and follow you. We pray for children's worship, and our God, we we long for this ministry to be one that bears fruit, the fruit of faith in the lives of our children, that they will trust you, that they will know you as their Savior, that they will give testimony in their old age that there was never a time in which they were not aware of you for you were faithfully proclaimed to them from the moment of their birth. And for us, God, please do a great work in our lives. For Jesus' sake, amen. The simplicity of discipleship, I think, is found in the the two words, follow Jesus. I mean, really, that's what discipleship is. It's just following Jesus. Now, we can see a lot of other elements to that. I remember years ago, I uh, proposed to uh, the congregation I was serving that I would take them through a series on discipleship. I said I anticipated it to be about six weeks. Uh, 36 weeks later, we finished. Um, it it, it kind of grew. Um, just as we began to think about the complexity of what what's involved in discipleship. But when it's all broken down, in the end, it rests in the proposition or the imperative, follow Jesus, right? But even there, we can get a little bit confused. There are some ways in which the evil one will tempt us. I think uh, in March, the adult Sunday school class is going to start through the screw tape letters. Is that right? And in that, one of the things that Lewis does through his uh, allegory of a uh, um, demon writing to an under-demon um, is showing different ways in which we get discipleship confused, in which we choose things that are a little bit less than that which is best and which Christ calls us to. When we think about some of the ways that can happen is, is one of the ways we can, we can work with this is instead of following Jesus, we can follow others, Right? It's very easy, instead of following Jesus, we can follow the church. Because we assume the church is following Jesus, and so we get along and we just kind of follow the church. And, and we can begin to find that our allegiance is really to our church. We can find ourselves following a doctrine. That there's a certain creed that we believe that we want to follow. And we, we think that if we follow that creed, we must then, therefore, be following Jesus. Sometimes we can follow leaders. Good leaders. Good godly leaders. But by following the leaders, we think that we're following Jesus because we assume that those leaders are following Jesus. But what we've forgotten about that is Jesus demands that there be no mediator between him and us. He wants us to follow him directly and to follow him alone. The second way in which we can get 
distracted is we can, we can relate to him in ways other than following him. Right? We can affirm him. We can stand and declare Jesus is the Christ. We can say Jesus is the only way of salvation. We can say even Jesus died for my sins, but not actually follow him. We can praise him. We can talk about uh, the, 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 the great humility of Jesus. We can talk about the exaltation of Jesus. We can talk about the great work of Jesus. And we can praise him and not follow him. And it's a, a, a danger that we face. We can even tell other people about Jesus, but not actually follow him. You see, these are subtle little ways in which we can be distracted from that very simple imperative of the Christian faith, of discipleship, which is to follow Jesus. We need to be aware of that. We need to guard ourselves against that. In Mark chapter 2, verse 14, it records Jesus' call to Levi. Levi had grown up as a Jew, uh, had probably uh, went to a temple, uh, did the proper sacrifices, was doing everything apparently the way that he was supposed to, and yet there was something lacking. So when Jesus met with him, he tells him what that is. He said, follow me. And there's this interaction in which Jesus changes his life forever. But in this interaction, you and I are also invited to, like Levi, to heed the call of Christ. To heed the call. How do we do that? Well, I think the first way to, to do that is we're, we're going to have to learn to, to face the consequences. We have to face the consequences. What did it mean for Levi to follow Jesus? Think about that for just a moment. What this meant for this man, because this isn't a myth, this, he's not a fictional character. This is a real man who had grown up in, in, uh, in Judah and who had lived his life. He had brothers and sisters and parents and cousins and he had friends and uh, probably a family and, and here he is in this moment and all of a sudden Jesus comes to him, invades his life and says, follow me. And what did that mean? And for Levi it was different. You remember that Jesus went to uh, Peter and Andrew and he said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, right? Peter and Andrew were fishermen. So were James and John. They were fishermen. And Jesus called them and they said, okay, well, we'll leave our fishing nets and we'll go follow Jesus. But then when things got hard, it was pretty easy for them to say as they did in John chapter 21, verse 2, Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee, the two others of disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will come with you. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. He wasn't just saying, well, I got nothing else to do. I might as well just go ahead and throw my line out in the water and just kind of have some fun, right? No, 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 no. He went back to his career. He says his fallback. He could go back to become a fisherman again if this disciple thing didn't work out, right? But it wasn't that way for Levi. When Levi left the tax booth, he left it forever because he had a position there in which he was appointed by the Roman government. And he was appointed there to serve them to take the taxes that they required. And from that, he was able to get a, a, a reasonably good income. So he was doing all right. And uh, in leaving, the Roman government were about to give it back to him if he decided that this disciple thing didn't work out, right? It was gone. He needed to be cross-trained. He'd probably have to go sell paint or something like that in order to get by after, after leaving if, if the disciple thing didn't work out, but it, but it did. But you see, when Jesus said, follow me, Levi knew 
what it meant. Jesus knew what it meant. And that's what I want us to think about for just a moment. To realize the significance. Jesus knew that he was creating a hardship in Levi's life. Jesus knew whether or not Levi's family would understand. Jesus knew the financial burden that would place on Levi. Jesus knew how he would be ostracized now from both groups, from, from the Jews because he'd been a tax collector and from the Romans because he left the tax collecting. Right? And yet Jesus still called him. I think that there's an element of the health and wealth prosperity gospel that still sticks around in our minds to where we begin to believe that Jesus would never call us into something that would make life really hard for us, right? And yet that isn't consistent with the word of God at all. That's not consistent with the examples that we see of Jesus working in individuals and not example with the, the clear propositions of Scripture. For when Jesus calls us, there will be hardships that we will face. And we have to recognize that. Hardships will come. As a matter of fact, Jesus mentions this in Luke chapter 14, verse, 30, uh, verse 28. He says, For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? That idea of counting the cost. You see, he's putting this right in the section where he's talking about what, what discipleship is all about. And he says, you've got you to count the cost. You've got to face the consequences. You've got to know that there's going to be hardships that are going to come into your life. Let's think about what some of those hardships are going to be. First of all, you may lose family and friends. In uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, Jesus says this, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now here's a clear statement of Jesus that, that he, he has to be supreme in our lives. That if we love father or mother more or, or son or daughter more, that we're not even worthy of him. And in Luke chapter 14, he's, he's talking about the same idea. He says, uh, we have to hate our father and mother and hate our brother and sister and our children, and even our own life, if we're going to be his disciple. He takes it to that extreme for us to begin to understand that in following Jesus, we may indeed lose these relationships with people who are very dear to us. He also says that we may lose money. Again, in Luke verse 14, or chapter 14, verse 33, a little bit after what we looked at earlier, he says this, he says, So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Notice the, the absoluteness of this statement. He does not say, none of you can be my disciple unless he's willing to give up all of his possessions, does he? He doesn't say there are certain few who have to give up all their possessions if they're going to be my disciples, right? He doesn't say that at all. He says that to all of us. That's fascinating to come to realize that. That means that, that I have to come to a place where I understand that all of my possessions belong to God. I have to give them all up to him and use all of them for his glory, for his purposes, not my agenda. That's, that's a high call. I may lose family and friends. I may lose my money. I will have to own my sin. In Mark chapter 8, verse 34, he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. I remember the cross was something very different at the time in which Jesus said those words. We have it as a decoration inside the sanctuary, right? Some of you may wear it around your neck as, as a beautiful reminder of your faith, and that's all wonderful. It wasn't that at that time. It was an instrument of execution. That's how capital punishment was done. 
And it was specifically capital punishment, which you really wanted someone to die hard. And you wanted it to hurt. And so they would crucify an individual. And upon the cross would be nailed the crimes that the individual had been accused of and found guilty of, right? So Jesus, all they could do is put up there, he's the king of the Jews. Which is ironic. And that's why he died. For us, it'd be the list of our sins. And we have to take up that cross. We've got to lift it up. We've got to carry it with a full recognition of our guilt right there. That takes away some level of our dignity, does it not? It takes away some, some level of our respectability. We like to think that we're better than that. We don't like people to know what those sins are. We try to keep them quiet. And frankly, I'm okay with that. <laughs> I don't necessarily want you to walk around and start telling me every, every sin that's going on in your mind. God does. But I, I don't. But yet... If I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus, I can't be afraid of that. Because I also have to deny myself, which means I deny myself of the opportunity to save myself. I deny myself of the opportunity to be right and to be righteous in my own. I deny myself of the ability to save myself by my good works. This is what it is to be a disciple. Notice the absoluteness of this. I may lose family and friends. I may lose money. I will have to own my sin. Those are hardships that we are going to face. Here's where I like the full meaning of the word, but. But. Means that which is going to follow is more important than that which preceded it, right? But it's worth it. We're going to face the consequences. Hardships will come, but it's worth it. And friends, I want you to hear that. I want you to know. It's very easy to glory in the, the hardships that we face as Christians and to just focus on those. But we've got to look beyond that and recognize it's worth it. That's not the end of the story. The hardships aren't the big point. The big point is it's worth it that we face these hardships. To understand how it's worth it, I want to look at a, a section from the Westminster Shorter Catechism that describes to us how heeding the call of Christ is worth it. The first is from uh, question number 31. And question 31 asks, what is effectual calling? That's what we're talking about. We're heeding the call where Christ is calling us. Well, let's first of all understand what that effectual calling is. It is the work of God's Spirit whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, He does persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the Gospel. So this is what happened to Levi. At that moment in the tax booth, he looks up and there's Jesus. And Jesus speaks the word, follow me. But the Spirit has already been doing this work. The Spirit does this work inside of his heart to make that call of Jesus, follow me, to make it effectual, to make it work within his heart. The Spirit begins to convince Levi of his sin and misery, recognizing that he has indeed denied uh, God's people. He's turned away from God and he needs forgiveness. He opens up his eyes to the knowledge of Christ who is standing right there in his face and he renews his will, thereby persuading and enabling him to follow Jesus. This is what happened right there in Levi's life. And that's what's happened in your life as you have trusted in Jesus Christ. You didn't trust in him because you're smarter than everybody else. You trusted in him because his call was effectual. What I want us to now look at is, what are the benefits then of accepting that call? 
What benefits do they that are effectually called partake of in this life? What makes it worth it? They that are effectually called do in this life partake of justification, adoption, and sanctification, and the several benefits which in this life do either accompany or flow from them. He talks about three primary benefits of, of heeding the call. And the first benefit is justification. And we look at that and say, oh, that's nice. So we're all lined up to the left or the right. Is that what justification means? Right? We justify left, we justify right on our Word document. Justification has a very specific meaning. What he's telling us is the first benefit of heeding the call of Christ is that we stand before the tribunal of God where he is seated upon his throne. And we stand before him as accused sinners. And he looks at us and he listens to the argument of our advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ, who reaches up his hands, shows the Father the scars, and says, I have paid the price, Father, so that the Father looks upon you and I and He says, you are forgiven. As Daryl reminded us earlier in the prayer, He does not say, I overlook your sins. He does not say, I minimize your sins. He says, I've taken full account of your sins and my Son has paid the price completely and fully through His life. And you are therefore forgiven completely for all of eternity. And the Lord Jesus then turns and takes his robe of righteousness off of his shoulders and puts it upon you and seals it tightly that you can never take it off so that the Father then looks at you and says, and you are righteous because of the righteousness of my Son. Is that worth it? Is that worth it? That's an effectual call. That's the first benefit of our effectual call. The second benefit of our effectual call is that we've been adopted. We've been adopted. We lost all right to call God our Father at the moment that Adam and Eve sinned by eating the forbidden fruit. At that moment, we were no longer able to call them Father, uh, our, call Him our Father. But instead, we were children of wrath, even as the rest. From then on, we were sinful people. We were conceived in sin, and we lived our life in sin and rebellion against God. And then His Spirit comes into us in the effectual call and transforms us. And in transforming us, God says, I will not take you into my kingdom as slaves. I will not take you into my kingdom as workers and servants. But I will bring you into my home as my sons and my daughters. And I will give you all of the rights and privileges befitting the Son of God. Think of every right and privilege that belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, the Son. And those rights and privileges belong to you because you have been adopted into His kingdom, into His family. And not just adopted, but sanctified. Sanctification is making us holy. It's the work of God's Spirit whereby, whereby He enables us to die to sin and live to righteousness. To where He works within us real and true holiness. Friends, think about this for just a moment. We have to own our sin. It's one of the hardships that we face, right? But in owning our sin... He offers us justification, forgiveness, and a declared righteousness. We may lose family and friends, but we're adopted into the kingdom of God and into the family of God. We may lose money, but we will gain holiness. 
Can I say it again? It's worth it. Is it not? It's worth it. And there's more. Question 36. What are the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification? This is the, oh yeah, there's more part of the confession, the catechism. The benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification are, number one, assurance of God's love. Not only do we have justification, adoption, and sanctification, we can be certain that God loves us. We can have peace of conscience. We can have joy in the Holy Ghost, increase of grace and perseverance therein to the end. Is it worth it? Oh, goodness, yes. Oh, goodness, yes. Face the consequences. Hardships will come, but it is worth it. That's the first step of heeding the call, is I face the consequences. The second is, I will follow Jesus. Notice what Jesus did not say to Levi. Notice he did not say to Jesus, Levi, come to synagogue. Right? And for us, sometimes that's easy in our evangelistic, it's, and, and I'm not saying it's bad. We need to invite people to come to church, but sometimes people only come to church and they're done. What we really want to do is invite people to come to Jesus, right? He didn't say come to synagogue. He didn't say become a Pharisee, did he? He didn't say take upon you all of the, the rigors of Pharisaic training and begin to put them into practice. He didn't say that at all, did he? It's not what he said. He didn't say clean up your life, Levi. He didn't. He didn't say that. He didn't say, stay where you are either. What he said was, follow me. Follow me. We need to remember that this was a moment in time in which Levi lifted his eyes, looked into the eyes of a man across a booth from him. And that man had the audacity to say, follow me. You see, Jesus is a person, and we have to remember that. Think about Levi's experience. As Levi is in that booth, he saw Jesus. He saw his face, he saw his body, he heard Jesus with his own ears. He saw the lips move, and the words come out, follow me. He also smelled Jesus. In that moment, because he was fully a person, he was a human right there with him. Can you imagine the amount of faith that it would take in a moment like that to look at another human being and to lift your eyes and say, you are my Lord and my God. I will go wherever you call. And yet that is precisely what Levi did. What amazing, astounding faith that he had at that moment to follow the person of Jesus Christ. Levi knew that Jesus was not a creed, right? Levi knew that Jesus was not an organization or an idea. He knew that Jesus was a person. And he followed Jesus a person. And we too must follow Jesus a person. What does that mean? I think that's one of the more challenging questions that we can ever ask. And I, I, I strongly encourage you. There is a, a book in which it's a man's meditation 
on what that would be. It's called In His Steps. It was written in the 1890s by Charles Sheldon, who was a pastor, I believe, in Kansas. And uh, in, in, remember, it was somewhere in the 1990s, 1997. It was about the 100-year anniversary of that book. And all of a sudden, the What Would Jesus Do movement happened, which was all inspired by this book. Well, this book happened because the pastor, Charles Sheldon, was seeing that young people weren't coming to Sunday evening service anymore. And he was heartbroken about that. And instead of just blaming them and saying, see, they're unregenerate, he said, well, maybe I need to give them something they're interested in. So he began to write a book and read that book to them. And so each chapter ends in a little bit of a a cliffhanger because he wanted them to come back next week. And so he wrote this book, and it was all about what it means to follow Jesus. The story is that this pastor, the main character of the book, is preaching on a Sunday morning from 1 Peter 2.21 about following Jesus. And as he's preaching, there's this uh, man who'd been going around town all week uh, looking for money. He was a homeless man. Walks up at the end of the service, after the sermon, this man walks up into the middle of the aisles and says, um, I'm pretty sure I'm going to die in the next few days, and I'd like to be able to know that I had my say in a place like this. And he said, you just preached a message about following Jesus, and I'm just wondering what that looks like in reality. What does that really mean to follow Jesus? The man then collapses, goes to the pastor's home, passes away in the pastor's home, and all week the pastor is left to think about those words. And it transformed his life. Now, if you read this book, you begin to see this is what Charles Sheldon believes following Jesus would look like. And the idea is, I'm going to make decisions based on the answer to the question, what would Jesus do in this situation? And I'll begin to understand that as I look to the Spirit of God and the inspiration of the Word of God to understand what he would do. Well, I think that's a rather profound question, is it not? What does following Jesus look like? What does following Jesus as a person look like? I think one of the things it looks like is we actually have conversations with him. We don't say our prayers, we talk with God. And there's a difference. I'm able to have that conversation with God in which I turn off the radio because He's there with me. I don't have the radio blurring when I've got someone else sitting in the seat next to me, so sometimes I'm just going to turn it off and I'm going to talk to Jesus. I might even talk to Him about the song I just heard. But I'm going to talk to Him about what's going on in my life. And I'm going to converse to Him as though He's actually right there with me. Because, you know what? He is. And I believe it. And I show that I believe it when the words come out of my mouth. It's at that moment that I'm believing that he's there with me and I talk to him about everything that I'm facing and I ask him to give me guidance and I ask him to give me understanding and I ask for his help. I ask him to help with friends who are struggling with stuff. I ask him to give me faith and I have that conversation. Sometimes the conversation is just quiet because sometimes I ride in a car with someone and it's okay to just be quiet and still for a little while, right? And so sometimes I'm just with Jesus and I'm just glad to be with Jesus. I think of uh, uh, my granddaughters and sometimes they'll crawl up in my lap and they'll watch a TV show. And I love it. You could say, well, but they're not paying attention to you. It's like, yeah, but they're in my lap. And they chose to be there. They're watching other stuff, but they wanted to watch other stuff with pop. And that's precious, right? Right? What if sometimes we kind of, if you will, hop up into our Father's lap and we just allow life to go on, but we want to be with Him and so we're still with Him. That's treating Him as though He's a person, that He's there with us. It's also treating Him as a person 
as I develop a deep affection for him, I begin to recognize how much he adores me. I begin to luxuriate in that, and I find that I really, really love him too, that he is the dearest thing in all of my life. This is treating him as a person, and he must become your life to be fully your life. This is what it is to follow Jesus. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes about it in The Cost of Discipleship. I have to be careful when I read this uh, because I've got you know eight or nine different places marked off with uh, uh, business cards of what I use for my bookmarks, and I want to be sure to not uh, drop them. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, a recent biography of him, uh, tried to treat him as though he were an evangelical in today's world, and and Bonhoeffer wasn't. Uh, Bonhoeffer leaned toward neo-orthodoxy later in his life. But his book, The Cost of Discipleship, um, is, was written early on, I think before he, he, he went into that direction. Dietrich Bonhoeffer also was involved in an assassination plot to kill Adolf Hitler. Ordinarily, an individual who's involved in an assassination plot, I would suggest we probably don't need to read a whole lot of what they have to say. But in this case, as a minister in Germany and one who determined that he had to remove the greatest evil that Germany had ever seen from its midst, I say that by his life and his martyrdom, we probably ought to read what he has to say and pay attention. And we recognize that he'll be wrong from time to time, kind of like Calvin, kind of like everybody. And so we read it carefully but we listen as well because this is a man who lived out what he's talking about and I need to be very, very certain that I'm hearing what he has to say. And he says this in commenting on Mark 2.14. He says, because Jesus is the Christ, he has the authority to call and to demand obedience to his word. Jesus summons men to follow him not as a teacher or a pattern of the good life, but as the Christ, the Son of God. In this short text, Jesus Christ and his claim are proclaimed to men. Not a word of praise is given to the disciple for his decision for Christ. We're not expected to contemplate the disciple, but only him who calls and his absolute authority. According to our text, there is no road to faith or discipleship. No other road, only obedience to the call of Jesus. Amen? Here we see exactly what was going on. The fact that, that Levi could look at this man and this man says, follow me, and Levi says, yes, I will. He did that because Jesus is the Christ. No other reason. That's why. And he believed that because the call was effectual and the Spirit of God had worked inside him. Galatians 2.20 says, For I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's what it is to make Jesus my life. To live out this as a reality. That's how I live my life. Which means I'm gonna, I learn to rejoice in obedience. It was a little over a year ago that I had uh, the event that I went in for a stress test and I thought it was going to be no big deal and um, all of a sudden I looked at the uh, technicians and I said, you know, this is that, that feeling that I had that caused me to get this checked out. And they said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, we're going to turn this down, slow down, and you need to step off very carefully and slowly and sit down. And uh, I looked over and I saw that my, my heart rate was way over 200 and, and they, they had me sit down and uh, began to deal with me and they did other tests and found that I had some blockage and had the AFib and, and they were concerned. And, and it was something that, that struck me. I've got to change some things in my life. 
And as I talked to the doctor, they told me different things and different diet changes I had to do. Losing some weight was important uh, to take some of the stress off of the heart. And uh, uh, so in, in doing this, one of the things that they said was you needed to have a lower salt diet. And I thought, but I like ruffles. A lot. What do I do? You know? And so for a while I was thinking, oh, but I like, I like potato chips. I like salty food, but I like those. And you know what? was really, really ineffective at actually cutting out the salt in my life. But through this, I began to say, but ruffles are harmful to me. They may be good for you, but not for me. And I began to see that it was a whole lot easier when I began to see, oh, I need to have less salt for my health, which is a good thing. And all of a sudden, I saw a change. And all of a sudden, the, 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 the making the dietary changes, making the exercise changes, began to help, and they began to work. Why? Because my attitude toward it changed. It's so easy for us to think about obedience to Jesus, and all of a sudden, you know, we're like, oh, don't talk about that, you're legalist, legalist, moralist, get away. No, 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 no. Jesus doesn't tell us to run away from good stuff, does he? He tells us to run away from the cesspool. He tells us to run away from the toxins, from the poisons, from that which brings death into our lives. The mistake of Adam and Eve is they thought that the the fruit was good. No, no, no. God said it was not good. And we need to have that same mindset that when he gives us a command, what he's commanding us to do is that which is good for our soul. It's helpful to us to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. It's beneficial to us to not murder to not lie. That's to our benefit, and he gives us those. And as I begin to have that mindset, I begin to rejoice, to rejoice in obedience. Second Corinthians chapter 7 speaks about this. I was asked recently um, by an organization that was uh, working with individuals within their organization who had been convicted of being uh, uh, oppressive and abusers, and they wanted to find a way, how do we know when they're repentant? How do we know when there's been a real change? And they contacted me to ask if, if there were some things that I used in, in my ministry about that. I said, well, I don't know about tools, but I've got like this thing called the Word of God. Um, and in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 and 11, he tells us what true repentance looks like. And I said, and I began to outline each of these points and get them to think about it. And I want us to look at the, the first of those uh, for just a moment, but let's read the whole thing. For the sorrow that is according to the word of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves. And that means to, you have proven that your repentance is true. That's what vindication of yourself means. He goes on to say, what indignation. What indignation about your sin. How much you hate what you have done. What fear, what the terror inside you that you might fall back into that sin. What longing for real change. What zeal for that which is good. What avenging of wrong, the restitution that you make for the sins that you have committed. You see, this this is not usually what we think of when we think of repentance, right? This is like way beyond. But this is what Paul says is the basis. This is what it is. And so as I wrote to this organization, I wrote specifically about a repentance without regret. Repentance without regret isn't that um, I'm, I'm going to uh, repent and not even regret what I've done. No, 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 no. I'm going to repent and I'm not going to regret the fact that I'm repenting. 
I'm going to leave salt behind and glad that I did. I'm not going to regret that it's there. I'm not going to repent like Lot's wife. I'm keeping with the salt theme, you see. To where she kept looking back. You've got to leave without looking back. That's what he's talking about. That's the first step of a real transformation. That's the obedience that I rejoice in, the, in obeying my Savior. It's a wonderful opportunity that I have. He's allowed me to see the cesspool. He's allowed me to see how harmful it is. He's allowed me to see the way that is right. And he's allowed me to trust that he's right and to follow that right way. He's done this great thing and I rejoice in his kindness. So much so that Jesus can say in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. But not just to rejoice in obedience. More importantly, to really enjoy Him. This theme of God as a person with whom we relate is not just a New Testament thing. Micah 6.8 said, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and look at that last one, to walk humbly with your God, to walk with God, enjoying Him. This is what it means to follow Jesus. If we heed the call, we've got to face the consequences. We've got to follow Jesus. And friends, the time is now. Now is the time. Notice as Jesus says to Levi, follow me. Levi did not say, well, that's an interesting thought, Jesus. Hmm. I'm going to take some time and think about that. Right? Thanks. Thanks for that challenge. Well done. Did not say I'm going to go talk to my wife about it, did he? Reminds me of a story of uh, Steve Saint. Uh, Steve Saint's father, Nate Saint, was one of the five missionaries that were killed in 1957 in uh, South America. They were trying to reach a tribe that they called at that time the Alka. And that includes uh, Jim Elliott uh, was one of those uh, five missionaries and Nate Saint. And they were trying to reach this tribe that had never been reached. It was probably the most violent tribe on the face of the planet. And as they got close, the tribe turned around and killed all five missionaries. And though they had a gun and could have protected themselves, they said, but if we kill them, they will go to hell. And if we die, we'll go to heaven. So they chose to not utilize the weapon to protect themselves. And from that then, the Waodani is what they called themselves, the Alka, um, were, were touched. And eventually, um, Elizabeth Elliot along with uh, Nate Saint's sister, were able to make contact with the tribe and were able to come in and live among the tribe. And Nate Saint's sister lived there, and Steve Saint would go there frequently and would grew up, basically, among the Waodani. After his aunt died, he did the burial service there with the Waodani, and the leader of them came up to him afterwards and said, uh, Steve, we believe that you need to come live with us. And he said, wow, that'd be a total change of my life. And, and he, he says, well, I'll, I'll have to pray about it. And he says, the leader of the wild down, he said, why would you have to pray? We've already prayed and God said you need to come here. Why would he give you a different answer? That wouldn't happen. That's not God. Come on. And he says, well, I, I need to talk to my wife. They said, why? He said, well, well, to see what she thinks about this. And he says, well, doesn't she follow God? Yeah, well, God wants you here. She'll want you here. Why would you have to talk to her? We've already got this settled. This is fine. I love the simplicity of faith. And I wish I thought more that way. 
But you see, what they did with Steve Saint is they said, now's the time. Now's the time. This is the moment. The text here in, in, in the Greek is, is amazing. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. Follow me is in the present tense imperative voice. So that means it's a present continuous action, and it's a command. You'll do this right now. Right now, you will be doing this continually, okay? That's the command. Then he says, and he rose up, I think. I'm sometimes forgetting the exact translation that they use. He got up, which is an aorist participle in the temporal form, right? Which means, aorist means it's a, a completed action. But when it's in a participle, it's, it's speaking kind of a, a, a past tense. And, and so he's saying, having gotten up, he followed him. So the, it's to say, the moment he got up, he was following. And he followed him is also in the aorist, it's an indicative. That he followed, meaning, and that doesn't speak of past tense, it speaks of completed action. In other words, there was no looking back. At the moment that Jesus came and he said, in that moment, in that present tense, follow me, he rose and followed him as a single completed action. It was done. Now is the time. Now is when it needs to happen. This is the moment for action. It isn't for later. It's now. Ask yourself, what about me? What about me? I know most of you and know something of your faith and you have put your faith in Christ years ago, right? And we do. And yet there are times in our life when we get into being a Christian more than following Jesus, right? We can get really settled into living the Christian life and we can kind of get a little numb to following Jesus. That's possible some have yet to give your life over to Christ. In either case, now is the time. Commit yourself to Jesus right now and say, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go because you have died for my sins. Even if you believed years ago. And yet now you say, and I want to come back to this. I want this to be central. Now is the time. Heed the call. Face the consequences. Follow Jesus, a person, knowing that now is the time. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks for your word. We just want to be still for just a moment and ask you to move in each of our hearts. Lord, there's an action that you desire from each one of us, a commitment that you desire from each one of us, a call that you've placed upon each of our lives. We choose now, O oh God, to heed that call. To be the individuals that you've called us to be. To follow Jesus. 
we move forward without fear, trusting you, O God. Show yourself faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.